tonight, Thursday night. We've got a rainy night. Clouds are covering the sky, but the sun is shining in the Word of God. And so if we, if we come in with the right heart, uh, we can be encouraged and strengthened by the Lord. And I pray that that happened for each of you tonight. Uh, just returned from the uh, SING conference up in Nashville. Uh, there were about eight of us that went, and it was outstanding and great, uh, great preaching. Alistair, Mc, Mc, uh, Alistair Begg was there, and he did a phenomenal job, and, and there were just so many good preachers. And then the, the, the conference itself is about, really the, the impetus behind the conference is to get congregations to sing. You know how today in the church, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, when you go into a service of worship, it's the people on the stage that are doing all the singing. And you can hardly hear the people around you singing. Yeah. And uh, so their whole thing is, it's all about, it's all about, uh, uh, getting the congregation to engage in the worship of God. And so it was just spectacular. And of course, uh, uh, Keith and Kristen Getty are the ones who produced the entire event. They are from Ireland. They are songwriters. They're hymn writers, actually. And they have really put together a wonderful uh, uh, consortium of, of hymn writers from all over the world. And uh, we heard one lady who got up and sang her hymn that she wrote, and she's from, where was that, Indonesia? Yeah, Indonesia. And, uh, but so there's, there's, there's the ancient hymns that they really, you know, sing, and then there's the modern hymns that are being written. What's beautiful about hymns is it's rich in theology about God. And uh, so it was just a special event. I came back fired up, pumped. I'm liable to preach three hours tonight because of all that. And just, there's so much going on in me. <laughs> all right, so let's begin with prayer and get into the Word of God. Father, uh, just reminded again this week that in this day that we live with so much negative news and so many difficult things happening and we see death around us, we see people who are confused and distraught, there's a sense of reluctance, even in the body of Christ, people who are struggling with their faith. There's doubt that's risen up in the hearts of some. And Lord, uh, there's just it's just a difficult day. And yet, none of it is a surprise. It should not be a surprise to us. You gave us fair warning throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, of these days that we're in. And so tonight we gather and we know that uh, as bad as it gets outside, in you we have hope, we have life, we have strength, we have everything we need to go through this life. And I pray that the body of Christ tonight, by the Word of God, would be strengthened and equipped to go into this world and share the good news of Jesus with people. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your Word. Amen. All right, last week in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we delved into the mystery of iniquity. We started talking about David's sin with Bathsheba, how sin tastes good in the mouth, and yet it spoils in the stomach. And that's the truth. That's the reality of sin. How sin we talked about how sin will take us farther than we want to go. It will keep us longer than we want to stay, and it will eventually cost us more than we want to spend. 
And when David set out for an evening of pleasure with Bathsheba, I can promise you, he didn't intend for it to last longer than a night. But it turned into a terrible ordeal, and it even brought destruction. And we're going to look at that this evening. David's sin took him farther than he wanted to go. The, the Word of God is like a mirror. We're going to see that tonight. It is amazing how God uses His Word to reach us when nothing else will. And the way God presents the Word to us sometimes, He lets us see a truth, but we, we look at that truth from the angle of how it affects others. We don't necessarily look at it the way it affects us. So when we listen to the Word of God, we get truth, we go, oh, they need to hear this. <laughs> I wish such and such were here tonight. And, but God has a way of using His Word as a mirror in our lives and turning it back to us. I can't say that that's fun when God does it because it reveals ugliness inside of our hearts. But it is so good for us to allow the Lord by the Holy Spirit to illuminate what's in our hearts. And, and this is what happens to David. Sin took him farther than he wanted to go. And because of his 12 months of, of sinful behavior, it kept him much longer than he wanted to stay. Uh, his ultimate confession and repentance of his sin was a blessing. But there are painful consequences that follow even after we confess sin. Just because God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us of all unrighteousness doesn't mean that there's not a fallout to sin, a consequence to our wrong actions or wrong decisions. Certainly that is the case with David and Bathsheba. That's why we want to avoid sin to begin with because it never just becomes a moment of pleasure. It ends up in destruction. It ends up in confusion. It ends up in turmoil. And if we can only, as the enemy is tempting us, or as our flesh is tempting us, or as the world is tempting us, if we could just focus on that fact, it doesn't stop here. The world, the flesh, the enemy is telling me this will... This will taste so good. And he's probably not lying. Sin can taste pretty good in the mouth. But when it hits the stomach, it's a whole nother deal. And, and so David ultimately made the confession. He repented of his great sin, but not without a lot of consequence and pain and sorrow for others and for him. What did it cost David? It cost him dearly when his infant son died. It cost him dearly when his oldest son, Ammon, raped his half-sister and David's daughter, Tamar. It cost David dearly when his son, Absalom, killed his half-sister, or I'm sorry, killed his, his brother, Ammon, to avenge the rape of Tamar. It cost him greatly when Absalom chose to go into his father's concubine and have his way with them. It cost David severely when, years later, his trusted friend and counselor, Ahithophel, assisted young Absalom in a plot to overthrow David. 
to literally give the throne that God had put in David's hands into his son's hands. So David's sin came with a great cost. You know good and well that if David had thought through or knew what was going to come out of his sin the night before he was with her, he would have never gone out on that balcony. As we enter chapter 12, we see God yet again trying to bring David to the end of his sinful behavior. This time, God is going to get David's full attention, as only God can. Uh, why, why is it that our sins always look a whole lot different on someone else? They don't look so bad on us. We can justify, we can, you know rule out the, the negative aspect and go, well, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a victim here. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. On others, there's no, there's no mercy. There's no grace. Um, it's just amazing how here in the story, David was being deceived in thinking that uh, the sin is from someone else when actually God is saying, no, you, you're the man. It's your sin that I'm talking about. So let's pick it up, if we can, at verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan being the prophet of God, the man of God in that hour. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. So he's actually sharing a parable, but David doesn't know that. David sees it as an actual literal story, something happening inside of his kingdom. And so there were these two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had, a very, had, had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up and grew it up, and, and, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So... This little lamb is a pet to the children and even to the father, a very, almost like another child. You know how some people literally, I mean, they, 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 they see their animal, if they don't have children, they see that animal as a child. And in a sense, this guy really got close to this animal. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of, the, of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, chapter 11 ended with the postscript. Let me give it to you. Here it is. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, this was the first time in that chapter that we actually got God's opinion on David's sinfulness. This was the first time when God actually shared what David's sin did to him. It displeased him. Up to that point, David tried in every way to cover up his sin. He finally thought he was successful because Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who he put on the front line to, be, to die, died. And now it looks as if David is being this benevolent king who takes this widow of a loyal soldier who died in battle for the king, and he's going to take this woman in and provide for her. And of course, her husband, the soldier who died, he did, never knew that she was pregnant, and David's going to care for the little boy too. 
What a cover-up. And the chapter ends with, and this displeased the Lord. Here we get God's take on David's sin. I think what we can't ignore is in the character of God, how he continually tried to show mercy to David. He tried to speak with David, even though David wasn't listening. He's never, God never quit. Listen, listen, hey, this is Old Testament now. This is the Old Testament God who's showing mercy to a, in this instance, a wicked king, trying to reach him to get him out of his sinfulness. And that doesn't mean that we should presume that God's mercy, assume that God's mercy is going to always just be there. We should, that way we can go ahead and take advantage of it and sin like we want to sin. There are Christians who live that way. Well, I'm saved unconditionally. Therefore, I can go out and I can just do whatever I want. God, will, He's already forgiven me. No, no true believer who's saved would live like that. The only people who take advantage of God's grace in that way are people who are not truly saved. Because they only saw the grace of God as a, as a ticket, a free ticket into a sinful life. Truly, people who are saved, they've been called out of darkness. They don't want to go back in it. They desire to follow God. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm saying they desire. You see? And, and, and here God's showing David mercy. Nathan is being used of God to bring David to the full awareness of his sin. That was a, listen, God sent Nathan. This is God's act of kindness toward David. It was common in those days to keep a lamb as a pet. That, that was not uncommon. In fact, Jesus even used that whole concept in the Passover. God the Father in the Passover. Uh, in, in, when the Israelites were in Exodus, uh, in the book of Exodus, they were in Egypt, and you know Egypt is a form of bondage to sin. That's what it represents symbolically. And God was delivering them through Moses. And so finally, what got them out of there was that you would take a little lamb and you would sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, on the threshold, I mean on the lentil above, and the death angel would, would pass over that house. If the blood was on the door of the lamb, the death angel would pass over. You would not die. Okay? And, uh, but the part of the story that nobody seems to remember is that God specifically said, go out and pick the most precious, beautiful, unblemished lamb. Don't just get an old, ugly lamb that nobody likes. Get the one that looks perfect. Then, after you get it, Bring it into your house and let it live with you. God wanted them to be attached to the innocence of the lamb that would be slain for their covering of sin. And in this story, we see David is given a story from Nathan, the prophet of God, about a little lamb that was innocent. So God knows full well what He's doing here. Through Nathan, we learn how to approach a friend when we are heading in the wrong direction. I love this. 
Nathan was David's friend. This was not a man of God who never liked David or who thought David was arrogant or who saw David in sin and was like, well, he, I expected that of him. Eh, that's just who he is. We couldn't expect any more of him. No, no. This is Nathan, who in 2 Samuel chapter 7 pronounced a blessing over David. He knew David was God's anointed. And he loved David. This is a friend of David. God doesn't send a harsh, cruel person to confront David with sin. He sends a friend. Because he's not wanting David to have a reason to bow up against the charges. You, we all have that opportunity to either bow up or humble up before God when, when we're confronted with sin. When someone who comes to you is a dear friend, it's harder to bow up against them. And so Nathan comes. He delivers this message to David. Now, what is the sin in this story that Nathan is, is speaking of? What, in, the, in the parable, what is the actual sin? Uh, it's theft. David stole another man's wife. The parallel to David's story is that, the, that Uriah was the one who belonged to uh, Bathsheba, and Bathsheba belonged to Uriah. Now, I could see in this day and age that we're living in right now, if somebody's watching live stream who has not studied the Word of God, has, does not have an understanding of biblical covenant of marriage, that they would think, you mean you're treating this woman like she's a, an object for this man? He, it's his possession that she was stolen like she's a possession of this man? That's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm not apologizing for it. And I'm going to show you in the Word of God. I want you to understand this. Turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. This is God's concept of covenant relationship in marriage between a man and a woman. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll pick up at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Here it is. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Boy, would, the, would not the cancel culture and the woke love that passage. Likewise, listen now, it's not a one-way street. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Look what he says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. And then he tells you what that agreement is, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The husband's body belongs to the wife, the wife's body belongs to the husband. David took another 
man's wife. He stole her. It is a beautiful thing the way God created marriage. For us to consider others more important than ourselves. That my spouse is the greater value. Not me, her. Not you, him. He's the greater value. She's the greater value. You belong to one another through the sacred vow of marriage covenant. God wants you to see marriage this way. In fact, turn if you will again. Let's just take our, we're going to turn to scripture tonight. We're Bible students, right? Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 31. This is how God wants Christians to see marriage. This is how God wants everybody who's married to see marriage. But it will make no sense to a person who's not in Christ. To a Christian, listen, this should make sense to you. If it doesn't, then you're not really understanding the character and nature of God, and you're not understanding how and why He created marriage. So Paul's going to tell us what that reason is. So if you look at verse 31 in Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That passage is a quote that Paul is making from the book of Genesis. In the beginning, this is what God prescribed for marriage. And he says, you are to leave mom and dad. That means mom and dad no longer control you are responsible for you, have authority over you. That means you should stop calling mom and dad to deal with your marital issues. You are to work it out with your spouse. You leave mom and dad. It doesn't mean that you're cruel to them. It doesn't mean that you forget them. There is a very significant place in the life of a married couple for their parents. But the parents have no right into the marriage. And you should not be sharing that stuff with your parents. And he says, mother, you leave father and mother, and what do you do? You hold fast to your wife or your husband. Hold fast. In the Greek, literally, become adhered to. You're adhered to. If you take and peel back the veneer on these, these bookshelves, Take that, let that veneer off, you'll see particle board, most likely. And particle board are fragments of material that have been adhered to, eat, to, eat to one another and creating a solid piece, a piece of plywood. It's adhered, it's layers, little thin veneer layers that are adhered to one another. Have you ever tried to pull the plywood apart, each, each layer? You can't. That's the way God sees marriage. You are holding fast to your wife, holding fast to your husband. You're not holding fast to your mom and your dad. Mom and dad have each other. When mom or dad die, then your widowed parent needs your support. They need your help. But you still don't set your spouse on the back burner to care for mom and dad. Hopefully, if you're in the Lord... Both you and your spouse will work together to care for your mom and, or your dad. This is the picture. You belong to your, to your spouse until you die. You belong to him. 
and guess what? They belong to you. Okay? There's nothing. Listen, by the way, you don't use sex as a tool to extract something from someone, from your spouse. Well, I'm going to withhold if you don't. That goes against the Word of God. That's wrong. Either way, from the husband or the wife. So in God's eyes, a husband has authority over the body of his wife and vice versa. In, and in our story of David, he obviously didn't have authority over the body of Bathsheba. That's why it says he stole. He, he, he was a thief. Now listen, church. Adultery and every other kind of sexual immorality is theft. That's what it is. You're taking what does not belong to you. Until someone's married, they belong solely to the Lord. Once they are married, now they belong to their spouse. So any kind of sexual immorality, fornication, adultery, whatever it is, it's, if you take that, it's, it's thievery. And, and this is also true for pornography and lust. You don't even have to be with another person. But this is not the way God designed for you to receive the pleasure of sexual intimacy. You're stealing. You're getting it in another way that God has not prescribed for you. If I can just give it to you this way, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1 through 6, I'll read it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. So if you're going to go out and make your own bed, guess what? You're going to sleep in it. That's what God's saying. I am the Lord. Verse 6, here it is. None of you shall approach anyone, he first talks about, that's in close relationship to you, a relative, to uncover their nakedness. He goes on to say in verse 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. So either with your family members or with anyone else. Listen to what he said. Look how he, how he describes it. You shall uh, not uncover their nakedness. Pornography. You're uncovering the nakedness of someone else. It's just as much a sin, Jesus said, to just look at a woman with lust is adultery. So, so God really is clear in what marriage is, and He is trying to communicate throughout the entire Old Testament and into the New Testament, because we've looked here in Corinthians and Ephesians, at what marriage is supposed to be and how by really living according to the, to the vow of marriage, we protect ourselves and others from thievery. Leviticus 18 describes the sin of uncovering the nakedness. Don't do it. Scripture is clear. Now look at verse 5 in our text back in first, or 2 Samuel. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. So Nathan has told him the parable about the poor man whose little ewe lamb was taken by the rich man, was sacrificed, was prepared, and served to his guest. And this little man had nothing else. This was all he had. 
David's anger was kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Now, it's interesting. Did Nathan ask David to make a judicial decision over the matter? David naturally assumed that the story was true. And so what did he do as the king? He immediately passed sentencing on the guilty man in Nathan's story. We're so quick, like David, to pass judgment on others who have committed, our sin, uh, committed sins. But we can't seem to get to our own sins. Quick to recognize, quick to judge others slow to recognize and mete out the same measure of judgment upon ourselves. By the way, passing judgment is a means to alleviate our own guilty conscience. People who are extremely judgmental have a guilty conscience. It eases the conscience when you pass judgment, you, you think. But the Bible says that if you have a guilty conscience, you're not going to get any sleep. How many of you found that to be true in your life? You ever had a guilty conscience? Oh, you guys, come on now. Everybody's hand ought to go up. And did you sleep well with a guilty conscience? I never do. No way. That was the hardest thing about getting a spanking when I was a kid. It wasn't the spanking. It was having to live with my guilty conscience until I was spanked. Go sit in the bathroom and I'll come in later. It's, it's probably no more than 15 minutes, maybe, maybe 20 minutes. Felt like three hours sitting there thinking about it. My dad would always, before he would spank me, very controlled, never out of control, but he would talk to me first. He would explain the sin that I... Do you understand that you sinned? Do you understand what you did? Remember what, how I said you don't do that? So, man, it was just no way for me to get away from the guilt. He made sure I recognized my guilt so that I would know he's justified in meeting out the discipline. Don't you hate it when they do that? And then I turned around and did it to my kids. They talk about that, you know. Dad, you would talk to us about it. That was worse than the spanking. David's strong sense of righteous indignation. He thinks he's so justified in passing this judgment. It was affected by his own guilt. That's why, he, that's why he called for a death sentence on someone for a sin that the Bible says is not a capital offense. This is the king. And don't you think for a second that he didn't know the difference. Remember what he said earlier? Look at this. He shall restore, verse 6, the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. You know what Exodus chapter 22 says? It says that if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen and for a sheep, four sheep. David literally called out the law of God. He got that right. The man needed to give four sheep for the one that he took. But what he didn't do was call out the right judgment 
He called out the right restitution, but not the right judgment. Why? Because he himself is guilty. And so you just go the nth degree to try to lift the guilt off of yourself. Put it on the other guy. It's interesting, as a pastor over the years, I've had uh, numerous times that people would come to me out of the blue, or they wouldn't come to me. They just left the church. And I would call people up. Hey, what's going on? I haven't seen you. What's, what's, what's going on? And they, well, and what I find as we talk, something else in their life is going on. It has nothing to do with the church. But they're casting all the emotional pain and frustration and confusion on the church and leaving the church. And sometimes I was able to get them to see that. Hey, really your issue doesn't sound like it's a church issue. You're, you're projecting that on the church, but that's really not what you're telling me. You're not telling me the church did something. You're in a difficult place in life. That's not a reason to leave your church. And there were other people who, they, didn't care, they just went and left anyway. Well, that's what David's doing. He's casting on someone else the shame and the guilt, the frustration, the confusion that's within himself. Something else we see David do is, is he, he, and this is good. I mean, he does rectify the situation with the right answer. But in the story, what infuriated David was that the rich man showed no pity to the poor man. David should have had pity too, though. <laughs> he could see how the man didn't give pity, uh, couldn't see how he wasn't showing pity. And who did he not show pity to? Bathsheba's father and grandfather. Remember back in the very beginning, he asked who the woman was, and he learned that who her father and her grandfather were. And guess who they were? His friends who were loyal to him. He didn't consider them when he took their daughter, granddaughter. It's amazing how we just can't see it in ourselves. I think that's a major point tonight that God's trying to, to illustrate for us here in this story. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man, David. Well, let's go back and put this in proper context. He says in verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And the next words from Nathan, the man of God, representing God, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over Israel, and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and you and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Boy, God's laying his case, isn't he? Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So this is the ultimate wake-up call. Nathan applied this parable with shocking simplicity to David's life. He shocked David into seeing his sin for what it was. J. Edwin Orr tells us of a time in revival in Brazil when a lady stood in a crowded church and said, Please, pray for me. I need to love people more. 
And the spiritual leader gently told her, Sister, that's not a confession. Anyone could have said that. I need to love Christians more. Later in the service, the same woman, woman stood again, and she said, please pray for me. What I should have said is that my tongue has caused a lot of trouble in the church. And her pastor whispered to the guest revival speaker, she got that right. <laughs> that dog will hunt. She's finally coming clean. It doesn't cost us anything to say, I'm not everything I should be. I ought to be a better Christian. It begins to cost you when you say, I've been a troublemaker. I've ruined another person's marriage. When we actually confess sin. So what's the root of David's sin? Ingratitude. That's what God just told him. I've given you everything. I made you king. I protected you from Saul. I would have done even more if it was needed. What did David do with it? He showed ingratitude. He said, whatever you've given me is not enough. I'm lusting. I, need, I want to fulfill my lust. I know the Bible says I shouldn't do it. I don't care. I want to do it. He took matters in his own hands. In Psalm 19, verse 8, write that down. Psalm 19, 8. Here's what David said. He said, the commandment of the Lord is pure because it enlightens the eyes. God's word will enlighten your eyes. The word is pure. It purifies your eyes. When you truly open yourself to the word of God and let the word of God speak, it changes you. It purifies you. It cleanses you. You can see better. I once was lost, but now I... And I see, right? I can see. I never understood the gospel. When you would talk about it, I never understood. It made no sense to me. Blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, the light came on, and the Word came alive to me, and I saw it for what it was. And now I'm going, what? was I thinking before? It's changed me. This is what just happened to David. The light came on. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is God speaking to David through the prophet. Because of your sin with Bathsheba, the sword will never be taken from your house. You're going to see bloodshed in your home, in your family going forward. This is the consequence of sin. Now, I want to do something here for a second. I want to separate, and I'll probably come back to it again because it's just so important. Sometimes we, we need to hear it repetitively before we really get it. But I want to say to you, we are, we are in the Old Testament. You and I live in the New Testament. This is before the cross. You and I live after the cross. Before the cross, God is actually, He can put a curse. Remember what Malachi said? For those who didn't tithe in the Old Testament, you are cursed with a curse, God said. New Testament, God doesn't curse anymore. It doesn't sound right. 
I don't, I don't mean he doesn't, I don't mean he no longer swears. <laughs> I mean, there's no more curses. Why? Christ completed. He finished completely the reconciliation of us back to God. Thank God for that. But see, David's not living in that day. And so here, God just lays it out. I, I would have given you whatever you asked. I took care of you. I provided. I protected you. Now, therefore, because of what you've done, the sword shall not depart from your house, because you have despised me, have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, God said that David despised the commandment of the Lord. Here, Nathan explained that in doing this, David despised God himself. We can't despise God's commandments without despising God. We can't have fellowship with God and despise Him at the same time. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in the darkness, John said we lie and do not practice the truth. You can't do both at the same time. You just can't. So, verse 11, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Wow. Tell me that sin doesn't cost you greatly. Now, does God forgive? Yes. But oftentimes there's a great price that we pay because of the decision that we made when we sinned. Not because in our day God's trying to curse us. You sinned. You chose it. You decided. Every decision has a consequence, whether it's a good consequence or a bad one. Our decisions make a difference. This was fulfilled in 2 Samuel chapter 16, what God said He's going to do. It was His own son Absalom who abused his father's concubines. So David is reaping what he has sown. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. David is reaping what he has sown with interest. That's the thing. It costs you more. You can pay now and play later, or you can play now and pay later. But if you, pay, if you play now and pay later, it'll cost you more. David's learning that big time. Look at verse 13. This is after Nathan has laid it out for him. And it's been hard, man. What Nathan has said is hard. It's his friend, and Nathan's trying to bring his friend to the end of his sinfulness. So he lays it out clearly, and then in verse 13, here's David's response. I have sinned against the Lord. What a difference from King Saul who blamed the people. He blamed others for his sinful act actions. David doesn't do that. He doesn't pass the buck. He placed the blame squarely on his own shoulders. He didn't minimize his offense. He very clearly sees his sin against God and he confesses it. I have sinned against the Lord. In the original Hebrew, David's statement I have sinned against the Lord amounts to only two words. The words are hata al Yahweh. Confession doesn't need to be long to be 
sincere. May that be a lesson to all of us. See, here's, here's where a lot of Christians get out of whack in their confession. We somehow think that I've got to somehow talk God into forgiveness. How can I get God to forgive me? And so I pray a long prayer confession. And then even after the prayer is over, the next day, oh God, I just, oh, oh. And we just keep coming with more and more and more. Thinking somehow, if I go long enough, then maybe God will forgive me. Can I tell you what the scripture says in the New Testament? If we confess, He forgives. It didn't say, if you confess for a week, then He will forgive. If you confess by a long prayer in public, then I will forgive you. No, if you confess, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Pow! Immediately, forgiveness. Immediately. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not consequences to David's actions. There's plenty of them. We're going to see that. But you see what I'm saying here? All the time, the whole time David's in sin with Bathsheba, God's trying to get into that point to confess. Because God says, the second you confess, I'm good with it. I just need you to come back under my wing. David wouldn't do it for a long time. And now all of a sudden, because God has shocked him with a story to see that his, the story's about him, and all of a sudden he's like, wow, now I get it. So why, while the words are few, they are complete. He offers no excuse, no hiding, no concealment of his sin. There's no searching for a loophole. There's no pretext put forward, you know. No human weakness that he's pleading. Oh, if you only knew how difficult it was for me, Lord a man who has all these wives and concubines saying it's difficult for him. That's the, that's this, that's the mystery to iniquity in, in sexual sin. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. I've got to have that pleasure. You get it. And guess what the guy's saying the next day? I've got to have it. It's never enough. And it goes further and further and further in a downgrade. It starts with lust. I've got to have it. And so back in the day, you'd go to a 7-Eleven and buy a, a, a girly magazine. Today, I've got to have it. So you open up your laptop. But then after a while, that ain't getting it. And so you go from the laptop to, i got to have it. So he stops at an adult uh, bar. And then after a few more times, i got to have it. And now he's out soliciting a prostitute. It's a downgrade. It's a downgrade. It's never, Satan never intended for you to have one little tiny piece of sin that brings you a second of pleasure and then leave it at that. Ever. Always more. It leads to more. Always leads to more. God had to confront David heavy and hard, and he shocks him into the truth. See, this didn't start with Bathsheba. This started 10 years earlier, or 20 years actually, when David started taking on more wives and concubines. And God's saying, enough is enough. I'm trying to get your attention here. Now, after some time for reflective thought, David offered a more eloquent expression of his repentance to God. The first, in the moment, David's like, I have sinned against the Lord. Later, he thinks about it, and he writes a beautiful piece. It's found in Psalm 
chapter 51. Let me just read for you the first four verses and then go down to verse 16. Here's what it says. This is David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. While I know that you are forgiving God, I also know I can't get sleep over what I did. I am sick about what I did. I am seeing my sin the way you see my sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Does that sound like somebody who's truly repenting? Somebody who's truly sorry for his sins? Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God doesn't want you, after your sin is found out, to just start going to church every time the doors are open, thinking that's going to cover it. You can't do enough to cover your sins. All you can do is confess it to God with a broken and contrite heart. And if you do that, that God will never despise. He'll never turn away from you with that. Everything else, all the sacrifices you make, all the things you do and say, blah, blah, blah. When God's done with sin, you need to be done with sin. You shouldn't live in sin after God's done with it. You know... We heard this at the, at the conference. I forget now. Oh, it was uh, Alistair Begg. He said this. He was talking about sin in us, and he said, we have a tendency to look inside of us, and when we look inside of us, what are you going to see? You're going to see sin. Just the way it is, right? And he goes, and we keep looking at it. He said, and what we fail to do is look outside of us. It was not inside of us that we found forgiveness for our sins. Never did, never will. It's outside of us at the cross where Jesus died. He didn't die in me. He died outside of me. So he brought up a quote from Robert Murray McShane, one of my favorite church leaders. The guy never made 30 years old, and yet some of the most profound Truth and teachings of truth are from this young Scottish preacher. And he once said, For every time that you look inside yourself, look ten times outside of yourself at Christ. Isn't that good? We need that. The answer is not inside of you. You can't live there. You can't keep beating yourself up after God has forgiven you. That's Satan. He is out to condemn you. And so condemnation never ends from Satan, right? He's the accuser of the brethren. How often? Day and night, the scripture says, he goes before God about you. But oh, thank Jesus that he went to the cross. He paid the price once for all. And so for every time I look within and see sin, I need to look ten times at my Savior who paid for my sins outside of me. Amen? That really ministered to me when he said it. 
I thought that was powerful. So, verse 13, the latter part of the verse, And Nathan said to David, after David said, I have sinned against the Lord, he said, The Lord also has put away your sin. There it is. You just confess, the Lord's put away your sin. You shall not die. Well, now why did he say that? Because what David did was capital punishment. If you, if you commit adultery, you die. So God, again, the God of the Old Testament, showing love, mercy, and grace. These people who say that, oh, I, I just don't read the Old Testament because that's, that's a God of hate. That's a God of, he's evil. He's doing all kinds of weird things to people, and I just can't. No, you don't, you've never read it. You have no clue what you're talking about. God's character never changed from the old to the new. It's the same God. So God forgives him immediately. He said, you shall not die. Verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now this is Old Testament again. This is back when God would issue blessings and curses, blessings and woes. And so God is saying, because of what you did, because of the decision, I'm going to forgive you. You're forgiven, David. But there is a price that's going to be extracted. An innocent will die because of your sin. This, in a sense, is another picture of Christ, right? So God forgives. David would be spared the penalty for adultery, but God didn't shield David from every consequence of his own sin, hence the death of the child. Verse 15, Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. I think it's easy for people today to have a similar experience where a child, uh, infant, is sick, and people, somebody would come and say, well, what sin did you commit? Remember they did that with Jesus. Remember that? They came to Jesus with the man who, uh, the disciples came and said, what about that guy over there? You know, he, he, he's, I think it was a blind man. Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. Not that they didn't sin, but that's not why the man is blind. He's blind so that God might show forth his manifested glory through the man's life. By the way, that little child that God took from David and Bathsheba, that child suffered for a few days and then went to be with the Lord. That child stopped suffering. David and Bathsheba, for the rest of their earthly days, would be reminded of the great price their sinfulness cost them. Now, they were forgiven, so don't live in condemnation. But it's there. It's there. But don't apply Old Testament to New Testament. You can't do that. God's not cursing in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean He's not judging. He can judge, and he's, the greatest judgment of all history is going to happen when the book of Revelation plays out. Right? So don't think for a second that now it's a different God. In the Old Testament, He judged. In the New Testament, He doesn't judge. No. He's, look, He's spared us, those who have received Christ, from, from judgment but he's still going to judge. And he is storing up his wrath against the ungodly. But it's different now. It's not the same. 
So don't let that weigh you down like your sin of the past. Something you did is why you're, this has happened, this has happened, and nothing's going right. No, no. Now, some of it could be because of your own decisions, right? If you, if you start smoking dope, and then it leads to acid down the road, and now you are whacked out of your head, and you don't even have a full mind anymore, uh, don't blame that on God's curse. That's the fallout of your decision-making, poor, poor decision-making, right? You see the difference? Okay, verse 15, Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. He did not eat with food. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself harm. The way he's acted with the child struggling to live, now that the child's dead, he's liable to go out and kill himself. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. I want to say that again. He cleans himself up. He goes into the house of the Lord and worships God. Then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. Well, that's not a complete picture. He didn't just get up and eat food. He got up and went and worshipped God. Then he ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, this passage doesn't hesitate to attribute directly to the Lord the sickness of this child in accordance with the prophet's word. But this tragic death, listen, brought far more suffering to David and Bathsheba than it did that child. That child is with the Lord, okay? So our chastisement is upon us because God loves us. Now remember this. This is very important. Prayer and fasting are not tools to get what we want from God. In this story, David prayed, he fasted, he wouldn't sleep on a bed. He would, he would not allow himself to be made comfortable. He slept on the hard floor. He did everything he possibly could to get God to spare the child. He prayed and he fasted, and God did not answer his prayer. So please write this down. This is very important. Prayer and fasting are not tools to get what we want from God. They are demonstrations of radical submission and surrender to God's power and will. That's what prayer and fasting is about. It's not about you getting what you want. It's about you getting to a place where you are completely, utterly dependent on God. You're in total surrender 
to God's power and to God's will. That's what prayer and fasting does. It puts us in alignment with God. It doesn't get God to align with us. And I don't know that any Christian would say that they would try to get God to align. Well, maybe some would. But that's unbiblical. It's not about you getting what you want. If it's not what God wants, it ain't going to happen. And if God does grant whatever you've prayed and fasted for, that doesn't mean God came to your side of the story. It means that you just happened to get it the way God wanted it. Do you understand what I'm saying? The proof that David's prayer and fasting was effective was not that he got what he wanted. He didn't. The proof that, he was, that the prayer and fasting was effective was that right after the child died, David got up and went and worshipped the Lord. That's hard to do. When the Lord allows a child to die, in this case, he didn't allow the child to die. God took the child's life. It's hard to rise and go worship God after that. David did. Why? Because he was in complete, utter surrender to God. Write this down. The ability to worship and honor God in a time of trial or crisis is a wonderful demonstration of God's glory at work in us. When you can worship God in the midst of trial and suffering, how many of you would say in this day and age, that stuff's all around us and it's coming into our homes and you can still worship God? Oh, what a testament to the glory of God in you. His glory is being seen by others in you. I've got a dear friend right now, dear friend, who is losing his life to MS. And he is going downhill really quick right now. But oh, what a testimony he is to God. Every day, the way he lives, the way he communicates with others. He, God is using him mightily. Job said, while, you, while he may slay me, yet will I praise him. I like when David said, I shall go to him, I, uh, but he will not return to me. That's good. David was confident that his son would meet him in heaven. You should have that confidence. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't know, I do not know that a unsaved family's child that dies has the same result as a saved family. And a passage that just causes me to have question is 1 Corinthians 7.14. It says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Something happens when the Lord comes into that home because of salvation. And I don't have the full understanding of it, never thought I did, never, probably never will on this side of glory. But there is something about salvation in a home that can actually have an impact on our children. And those who don't have that, I wonder. I just wonder. Verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. I want you to get the picture here. So now, for the first time, Bathsheba is called his wife. 
and he sleeps with her, and they have a son, and the name is Solomon. And it says in the text, the Lord loved Solomon and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name, this is Nathan, called Solomon Jedidiah. And it means because of the Lord. God never commanded David to forsake God and go and be with Bathsheba. Never called Bathsheba to forsake her husband and be with David. But now that David has confessed his sin, God is honoring the marriage. This is a tough one for a lot of Christians. I want you to see this is the Bible here. This is not my opinion. He was to honor God in the marriage commitment he made, even though it began in sin. I do not believe that a, when you have divorced, you've moved on, and then you marry somebody else, that you're to leave the person you're married to and go back. The past is the past. And if you've confessed it as sin, truly, you, need, you are now committed to a new person as a relationship that has started. Maybe it started in sin. It's ugly. It's terrible. But it's there. And in this case, God is honoring the marriage. God had the writer of, first, of 2 Samuel say that's his wife. That doesn't line up, does it, with some of the things that we've been taught. I know. It's a weird one. Paul commands the same principle, though, in 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Only let each person lead that life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Wherever you find yourself, just like a person who has been married five times before they got, before they got saved, and now all of a sudden they married somebody else and they're a Christian, you're not to hold those other marriages over their head. God doesn't. It was sinful. If they confessed, He is faithful and just to forgive. The church needs to forgive as well. Does that make sense? In part, this principle and context warns us against trying to undo the past in regard to our relationships. God tells us to repent of whatever sin is there and then move on. If you're married to your second wife after wrongfully divorcing your first and become a Christian, don't think that now you need to leave your second wife and go back to your first wife trying to undo the past. Because the Lord has called you now to this other... You're there. You're in it. Verse 24, And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. God is not seeing Solomon as the birth of a sinful relationship. God sees Solomon as a baby that he can love. What a great lesson for the church. How we measure and mete out whether we're going to love somebody or not based on their past. When our Father in heaven is not doing that, He is loving. David's best son, and he had several, came from Bathsheba a woman that he had an affair with. Because Solomon was the fruit of their humiliation and brokenness, it was different now. 
God doesn't throw people on the scrap heap after they've sinned greatly in His sight. God can still use them, and He still used David. If you ask me how I thought David's life finished, and I went from failure to he finished strong, I would say to you, David finished somewhat strong. Those sins cost him. He did not finish really strong. But he finished strong. <laughs> he did finish. The Lord used him. It is the son born out of a marriage that began in adultery that will be their heir to God's throne. God chose this son among David's many sons to be the heir to the throne and the ancestors of the Messiah to demonstrate the truth that God forgives and repent, uh, a repentant sinner. Isn't it beautiful that in the bloodline of Christ you have harlots? Wow. What a wonderful God. That, that ought to encourage us because we've all sinned and fallen short to the glory of God. Some of you are holding that sin. You're like, you can't let go of it. It's like it just eats at you constantly. And you just think, I can never be like, and point your finger at whoever. You are forgiven as much as they are. You're as much a child of the living God as Billy Graham ever was. If only we could see what God sees. People may not forgive us, and we might even refuse to believe that we've been forgiven. But here's the truth of Scripture. God forgives repentant sinners. I don't care what your sin is. You can be on death row for mass serial killings. And if there is true repentance, and only the Lord knows, but if it's true repentance that person will be in heaven. They might be your neighbor living in the room next door. <laughs> Only God could do that. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? Now Joab fought against Reba of the Ammonites and took the royal city. Now remember, this war against Reba started back in chapter 10. We're in chapter 12. And so Joab's going out still to defeat the Ammonites. He's trying to take them out. And so verse 27, Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Reba. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So what he's doing, this is kind of interesting, Joab is poking at David. He's saying, look, if you don't get back in the battle, which, by the way, is where David should have been, from the beginning, and he wouldn't have had an affair. But, but now he's poking at him, he's, saying, he's basically saying, if you don't return, I'm going to take all the credit for, for the victory by myself. And interestingly, when David returned to the battle, they won the battle. He was where God wanted him to be, and God started blessing him again. Verse 29, so David gathered all the people together and went to Reba and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head, and the weight of, of it was a talent of gold, and in, in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor 
with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of, Ammonite, of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. What was David doing? He's saying, okay, now all these cities I've taken, these folks know how to build things. They know how to make beautiful things. I'm going to have them work for the Lord. Now they're going to do it. And when I'm long gone and Solomon becomes king, all their work's going to go into the temple. But here's the thing. God would put this at the end of this chapter about David's sin, and he shows that God has truly forgiven because David is now back into being a king and God's blessing him again. God can bless whoever he chooses, and he's just looking for a humble vessel who's broken over his own sinfulness. And God says, I can use you. And God begins to do his work in that person's life. I pray that for every person that's listening by live stream, and every one of you here tonight, Father, we give thanks to you that David did not refuse the voice of Nathan when he was confronted in his sin, but he simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. What a model for us to follow. Father, so many of us are struggling with condemnation. We're struggling with not forgiving ourselves simply because we don't understand what the Bible says even in the Old Testament about your mercy and your grace and your love and how you are a God who forgives. Every one of us to some degree are carrying the consequences of past sin. But that's not because you, are, you have cursed us. It's because we have chosen to be ungrateful for what God has given us in Christ. Forgive us, Lord. And thank you that you're not holding that over us after we repent. But we're able to go forward and serve you with joy. May the world hear the gospel and may this be the message that they hear. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.